Welcome back to the Scarlet Thread Society. As always, this is Dexter De La Paz. I am reminding you to lock your doors, close your windows, cover your mirrors, and go ahead and light that pipe with me. We're back with Deddy once again. Say hello, Deddy. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing very well. Now, I seem to remember that last time we were on together, I derailed you pretty badly talking about the Russia-China rivalry, and then from there proceeded to get even further off the rails. Is that correct? That sounds to be in the ballpark of what happened, but that's all right. It's always good to follow the organic unfolding of a conversation. Well, and speaking of organic, you know, this is something I was thinking about as I was browsing Twitter today, uh, the day this was recorded, as I do virtually every day. And it just struck me how many people still seem to think that every event is right on schedule, as if there was a master plan or a blueprint. But what I think people don't necessarily realize is that the people who run the world are reacting just as much as we are, because they have their own rival cabals. They just have more access to levers of power to make adjustments in their plan than we do as plebs. I don't know. I was pretty fascinated today watching CNN. It felt like I was watching a movie be produced live on ice on the fly. I was glued to the screen. I was especially impressed with the ability of CNN to incorporate over time, not just one live cam in the corner of their newsfeed, up to two, and then four simultaneous live cam feeds embedded into their broadcast was especially impressive to me as they gave us total access to every millisecond of Donald Trump's day and triumphal return. So, you know, before we actually get into the good stuff here, I guess we should talk about that though, right? What's going to happen? What's going to happen, Daddy? Well, what's fascinating to me, and I I watched in the background while I was working CNN today because CNN was in many ways the origin and genesis of much of what has happened. In 2015, it was CNN who covered all of Trump's rallies, and the pro it, the man in charge of programming at the time had been in charge of. NBC and during the years of The Apprentice and he knew Trump was ratings gold and he told staff I want Trump on all the time cover everything no matter how small or inconsequential it seems and some have credited CNN with assisting Trump in gathering the momentum that eventually became <laughs> the inertia of the 2016 Trump presidential campaign so it was very fascinating and full circle to me to watch them breathlessly cover every single angle today. In particular, for those who missed it, they had these almost poetic camera zoom in as his plane flew off from Florida 
And they were following the plane until it disappeared in the sky. And then his magnificent return to New York City, they again had a, a camera trained as this little light came into view and then closer and closer until all of a sudden the screen just said Trump on his newly refurbished jet with the massive American flag on the tail wing. And it was absolutely surreal and I was absolutely delighted by the entire proceedings and I can't wait to see what else unfolds. They also had all of the important characters, Mayor Adams giving a very stern speech about how the city will not tolerate a loss of law and order. They had <laughs> multiple journalists sitting in little chairs on the sidewalk. They had people chasing down tourists, asking them their opinions. I mean, oh. I was just praying. Trump, he should. He should come out in a golden cape tomorrow and just send down the Trump Tower staircase. Why not? Just do it. They want it. They want it. That's just the thing. They recreate want it. Recreate the, uh, the escalator, right? Recreate and, the escalator. And the week of Easter, I mean, it, this is rich in symbolism, everyone. <laughs> but I know it's it's fascinating. The American media craves Trump. They crave him. They are adding the fuel, and they're going to then complain about the fire that they make. So I well, have they chosen turn to this be... into a whole big mess, right? There's no way. He doesn't win again just on the back of them slobbering over him, right? They 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 want to riot. They're on TV saying, please don't come and riot. Don't come and riot. No, we need to end. There's 300 cameras. I mean, they said there's more newscasters congregated around Trump Tower than there are protesters. It's all, it's journalists. They, they want the fireworks. They need the fireworks. They desire the fireworks. They're drawn to them like moths to a flame. It's junky behavior is what it is. Yes. Fiending for a fix of that Trump. And then they get mad at the public when we lean in because why not? What else? The world is crumbling. The dollar is dying. Why not have a good show at the end of it all? The whole world is a stage, right? Mm-hmm. Anyway, we need to, as delightful as I find this, we absolutely must finish our analysis of the World Economic Forum's 2023 predictions and agenda. We'll be done with it eventually, someday. <laughs> so, for those who have been studiously following along, I'm going to begin on page 43. <gasps> oh, no. Microphone pop. Microphone was very excited too. I had to jump over. <laughs> I think that this is fascinating because we're now entering the final sections of this to me were both green energy and then crypto and cyber were the two remaining large themes. And I wanted to focus on the cyber theme because there are Many aspects of this that have become increasingly re relevant in the past few weeks, and for those who had been following along with the hearings of the quote-unquote TikTok CEO, I think you will find this highly applicable. I think it illuminates why there is such an intense fervor over foreign entities having any sort of power or even perceived power over all of this information and data. On page 43 of the report, the World Economic Forum states, more insidiously, the spread of network data is increasing surveillance potential by a growing number of both public and private sector actors, despite stringent regulatory protection. As our lives become increasingly digitalized over the next decade, our everyday experience will be recorded and commodified through internet-enabled devices, more intelligent infrastructure, and smart cities, a passive, pervasive, and persistent form of networked observations that are already being used to create targeted profiles. 
This pattern will only be enhanced by the metaverse, which could collect and track even more sensitive data, including facial expressions, gait, vital signs, brainwaves, and vocal inflections. End quote. And so fascinatingly, they're basically fully saying, you know, the panopticon is here. It's a conspiracy, but also you are enmeshed in a complete state of total surveillance with biometric data completely enmeshed in this process. It's not actually happening, but it's good (laughs) for our bottom line that it is. I mean, every word is fascinating to me. They admit recorded and commodified. They understand that this is a also a, a commercial for-profit product. Internet-enabled devices, the quote-unquote Internet of Things, has fully arrived. They speak about the fabled mythic conspiratorial smart cities. Um, intelligent infrastructure, which has a very menacing tone to me. We've heard about, you know, hostile architecture. Now we have intelligent infrastructure in a state of constant surveillance. I think it's interesting that they also talk about the, quote, pervasive and persistent form of networked observations, which is essentially admitting that this is an entire system that works to both observe, package, and commodify every aspect of your day and then they even say right there that it's all day every day everywhere you go and targeted profiles are even saying yes this is specifically targeting you this isn't just a a product for observation of a group of people or a mass to predict maybe uh group behaviors they're saying it's targeted profiles right there you're in a smart city that's creating a targeted profile of you. If your eye twitches in your cubicle at work, you'll <laughs> be getting ads for maid services 20 minutes later. And then I, what I thought was so intriguing is, I mean, we've heard a lot about the metaverse lately and the alleged downfall of the metaverse. But they, and this is what I had always had many concerns about with the metaverse is as they say it will collect and track even more data including facial expressions gait vital signs brainwave patterns and vocal inflections i mean because to me the metaverse is itself has always has been a trap and it's a giant biometric data vacuum because when you go into the metaverse you are allowing it to collect all of this information about you And that information isn't just used to, quote, enhance the consumer experience and make the metaverse seem more alive. It's clearly all information that's being collected, recorded, observed, and could be used for any number of future uses. And that's very deeply concerning and very scary. And I always think that's so important to point out to consumers is that very clearly, there's a reason they want you to enter this place. There's a reason that they want the data, not just for the short term, but for the long term. And to think that if you willingly give over to a private entity, who then obviously can hand it over to any number of government agencies, which are already a de facto arm of the ability to understand what all of your ticks are, what your brainwave pattern is. I mean, that's actually deeply concerning and scary. That's not just the ability to observe behavior, but it's the ability to predict behavior. And if you give someone the the ability to predict your behavior, then you give them the ability to know how to shape your future behavior. Sure. Even people who think they're independent thinkers or reflexive contrarians, if they know how you act in certain situations, you can have things presented in front of you that bait a specific reaction. And it's, I don't know if it's too off track, but I actually, many years ago, I think I found the tweet recently. I think it was 2017. I was at it. Um, 
an upscale mall and I was visiting an old friend from school and there was there's a trailer, a very fancy trailer parked with very outgoing and very enthusiastic young tech people who pulled us in and they were from Facebook and they told us about the new uh, immersive 3D world they were building and they were doing like a test of it. And this is what was the prototype of the metaverse. And they put the Oculus Rift goggles on us and we went into this whole experience and it was fascinating and terrifying. And um, they explained to us that the reason they were doing this is they wanted to have the ability to be the platform for how we would live our future lives. They said, you can, on a grand scale, they said, you can explore the solar system with us. Um, we, But on a local scale, we want you to go to your graduations with us. We want you to live everyday life with us. We want you to have a meeting with your grandparents in the virtual world with us. And this was back in 2017 when this was still, you know, this is pre-pandemic, pre-Zoom, pre-everything. And it sounded very out there, but at the same time, I understood like, oh, this is, they're very serious and this will happen. And what was fascinating to me is as you were in this presentation, they kept telling us, isn't it so, and it was, the funny thing is I've, the presentation I was shown versus what I've seen of the metaverse, I mean, the metaverse looks like a children's game. It was true. Like, they really had you zooming through the universe. You were in this, like, 3D environment with these people. And while it did feel real in a lot of ways, it also felt, like, very disturbingly artificial. And the person kept telling me, like, isn't it so real? Like, don't you feel yourself involuntarily moving? Because I was just standing there. I was like, no, like, I don't feel an organic engagement with this. And the person literally took my arms and started like, moving them. I was like, see, I was like, I'm sorry. I, I don't like, it's cool, but also you're so aware of the senses that aren't being stimulated. That it was very bizarre. Like at the same time, like, yes, I'm zooming through this graduation scene and yes, I'm in this universe, but like, I don't have the sense of smell. Like, you don't feel the wind. Like, there were so many things missing. I was like, it's very clearly not real. And I don't feel compelled to gesticulate any of my limbs, which, like, very much upset the people who were there. To the fact that they started trying to, like, move my arms to be like, oh, isn't this incredible? <laughs> it was crazy. And I, I read a few tweets about it. I was like, oh, this is ridiculous. And then a few years later, you know, it all, like, came true. And I was cracking up but I was like oh no I was one of the the test the, the test subjects things. and I didn't even know I was just meeting you know like a friend from high school doing some Christmas shopping and no idea of the horrors that awaited us <laughs> that's extremely culty more than anything but I'm mostly yeah. I'm just confused because what they showed us then like that should be that doesn't look anything like the sad little things I've seen now. So I want to know what happened to that version. Because <laughs> that was at least pretty impressive in many ways. And uh, it wasn't just weird disembodied little like we people emojis floating around. But um, yeah. That's something I kind of wonder about too, though, is just how would you, how do they rather reconcile those two things because what they're currently delivering is very clearly not what they promised yeah or even what they tried to pitch it just seems to be like a biometric data trap to me like a pretty and i was blatant. thinking about that when you first started when you brought it up mm -hmm. it seems to me like a better analogy might almost be a tar pit right mm-hmm like yeah, no, they're trapping us in this to get an image of us, mm -hmm. to make fossils of us for whatever comes next. Ooh. Like getting trapped Ooh. in amber. I like that theory. It's very disturbing and very dark. I love it. Oh, so the following paragraph, which also has 
many key phrases that set my hairs up. Individuals have usually consented to the collection of data for the associated beneficial use of the service or product, given the wave of new and stronger data protection policies of many markets. The infamous word, however, (laughs) (laughs) as the collection, commercialization, and sharing of data grows, consent in one area may reveal far more than intended when aggregated with other data points. This is known as the mosaic effect, which gives rise to two key privacy risks. This is very important. Re-identification and attribute disclosure. Research suggests that 99.98% of U.S. residents could be correctly re-identified in any data set, including those that are heavily sampled and anonymized using 15 demographic attributes, Researchers have used this theory to uncover the political preferences of streaming users, match DNA from publicly available research databases to randomly selected individuals, and link medical billing records from an open data set to individual patients. So that to me was very disturbing and how clear it was that HIPAA doesn't exist, that even if you think something is protected, it's not, that simply through legally purchasing commercial data sets, the government, I mean, it's better than a warrant. They can know every single thing about you and legally commercially purchase it. And that's why when they're, you know, people make jokes like, oh, I said this to my friend or, oh, I did this one thing and all of a sudden I have these extremely targeted, scarily accurate ads. But that's why like, this is a real process that exists. And basically using a few data points, they know exactly who you are and can reconstruct your entire history and records. The other thing this demonstrates is that no matter how good you think your operational security is, if you've sent even one tweet and also have an email account, they've got your ass right there. That's enough. But I thought that was very important. 99.98% could be re-identified in any data set, including anonymized ones using 15 demographic attributes. I mean... There is no privacy. (laughs) It doesn't exist. And there's no protection because it doesn't, there doesn't need to be legal protection. This is all commercially available data. I mean, a warrant. You signed up for the free account, didn't you? Obviously, you consented. Warrant would get you less information than just going and purchasing like two sets of commercially available caches of data. And that's very concerning. Horrifying, even. Then what I thought, they continued on in consequential terms. Yes, very consequential. This means that an international organization may share anonymized data with partner governments to support effective and efficient crisis responses. (laughs) However, when combined with other... When combined with other data sets, it could allow the identification and tracking of vulnerable refugees and displaced persons. I think it's fascinating how they couch it in this language because we know it means anyone. I mean, you take one data set already, you know everything. Just one more data set, you've got everything mapped, no questions asked. Data on race, ethnicity, sexual orientation, and immigration status can be legally obtained in some markets and re-identified to varying degrees, enabling civil harassment and abuse. In one such example, the sexual orientation of a priest was obtained through the purchase of a smartphone location data and announced by a religious publication. 
And that's just what they're saying. And so obviously there's absolutely no privacy that with a couple purchases of commercial available data sets, you know, someone's deepest, darkest secrets are instantly available for purchase to anyone from private entities to public entities. And they're just fully admitting it right there. And this is stuff that people say is some sort of, you know, crazed conspiracy. No, they can't do that. No, there's legal protections. No, it doesn't work like that. And they're fully saying, yeah, it completely works like that. Well, then, you know, I don't know what I've got to add here. It's pretty <laughs> straightforward. That's and yeah, extremely it, bleak. They're not, there's no hiding anything here. There's no commentary a person even needs. Yeah. That's why I think just, that's why I always encourage people, just go read the source, please. Just go read the direct source. It's usually more out there than any conspiracy theory you're told. Just go read the direct source. They often just directly talk about it. If you're willing to just do a little Googling, or if you're willing to look at the footnotes list in a book, this stuff isn't hidden because they know they're untouchable. And I mean, they, they keep going on. They talk about the right to privacy is not an absolute. It is traded off against government surveillance and preventative policing for the purposes of national security. I mean, to me, that's one of like, the most bone-chilling sentences possible. Mm-hmm. Just straight out in the open. And then, of course, again, the infamous, however, the surveillance of potential data has meant that access to sensitive information can increasingly be obtained without due process or transparency. In some cases, data protection laws that require consent effectively waive the legal protections against electronic surveillance of private communications and location data. I think this is important too. I mean, the location data is what really soups all of this up because we all walk around with trackers at all times. So you can know the exact location where, when, why they looked it up. And you can instantly identify every individual. You can follow them through their whole day. And you can do this all, as they say, without due process. It's available for purchase to anyone, which means to governments, um, to law enforcement agencies. And this is all technically legally allowed within the existing framework. And even if you think you're being really clever by leaving your phone at home, Mm -hmm. do we know just what sort of data gets cached in our car's onboard computer? Mm -hmm. And they even touch on what you just said. I mean, I know... Thank you, and I've briefly touched on this before, but especially with the license plates readers, like every police car is essentially just a giant data vacuum now. They're tracking every license plate. They know all the movements of everyone in the country already. And they say, in the United States of America, data is aggregated and sold on the open market with limited regulatory restrictions, meaning enforcement agencies can purchase GPS location data without warrants or public disclosure. For example, theoretically, police could use automated license plate data obtained by both private and public sector organizations to prosecute out-of-state abortions, leading Google to announce that it would auto-delete location data for users that visited related centers. There's also increasing political and regulatory pressure to weaken encryption mechanisms adopted by private organizations. I mean, they're already saying everyone from the local police, Google, and they all already are completely aware of everyone and their movements, what they're doing, what they're reading, what medical services they're getting. And to me, that's incredibly disturbing personally i think it's really cute that they're pretending like they're protecting anyone when you and i both know damn well that dad is not actually deleted it's just getting siloed somewhere else Mm -hmm. and i mean it continues they say potential potential for misuses will be especially problematic for users in countries with poor digital rights records I mean, they've already established we don't even have any digital rights in the quote-unquote free country, so I can't even imagine what they're thinking for the poor digital 
rights records countries, but they say inadequate regulatory protection frameworks or authoritarian tendencies, forms of digital repression to quell politically motivated uprisings, such as the use of spyware to track activist activities, are already driving significant human rights violations in the Middle East. Recent reports have also highlighted potential digital rights violations in Africa stemming from the rapid expansion of biometric programs that include voter registration, CCTV with facial recognition, mandatory SIM card registration, and refugee registration. As more emerging markets look towards progressing their smart city plans, the collection of sensitive citizen data could expose societies to additional peril if poorly governed and protected. So again, it's their own, you know, they're fully affirming the same conspiracy theories they fight against, which is what we know. These smart cities are just a panopticon of total surveillance. We've been saying, of course, we know there's going to be human rights abuses in smart cities. And I think it's said, extremely cute how they keep talking about regulation and pretending that the people who wrote this report or the people who commissioned it aren't exactly the people who created regulatory capture with their corporations in the first place. It's a very Can you good pick point. up on that? I That's a very good point. I'm very glad you brought it up. I think that's what many people have talked, the issue with these supranational organizations, the quote-unquote public-private, um, the... Partnerships. Yeah, it's essentially a form of corporate governance. It's total subversion of any sort of national sovereignty or the idea of a sovereign citizen with rights. And it's it's supra government, supranational, supra everything. It's a total corporate technocracy. It's rough to think about is what it is. <laughs> yeah, this is it's getting dark very quickly. But we're mostly just quoting too. That's that's what probably yeah. makes it darker is you said very little. It's just the stark There's reality. There's been basically no com commentary yet in this episode. We are just <laughs> reading what they are writing. Mm -hmm. And then this combined with very serious economic shocks that are currently unfolding is where things become very, very tricky and very sticky to me. Because... There's a very fragile thin line of societal cohesion, and it tends to always lead towards more surveillance and more crackdowns as prosperity and social cohesion starts to unravel further. It tends to create even more oversight and more corporate control, not less. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I don't think I have anything to add on that in particular. It's not going to get any better because the factors are all compounding to make it worse. Anyone with two eyes and the ears to listen to this know that already. Yeah, I think it's the biometric data that really concerns me too because it's essentially, it's weaponizing everything organic and turning it into a a computational weapon which is very disturbing to me on many levels you know if you could even avoid two three four forms of biometric tracking if you went out in juggalo paint every day and wore a voice changer around your neck what are you going to do? Are you then going to break your own legs so that you walk differently? And that's what, you know, we already see this slow creep, which is what's so disturbing to me because they shouldn't even be things that occur. But especially with the rise of drone warfare, which has been completely normalized by the American public who does not care, is there's been the creep of anti-drone architecture. Um, we've gone into anti-drone gun technology. Um, there's already the beginning of these 
I don't know what the word is, defensive makeup or this idea that if you paint your face, it's funny, you know, it reminds me of um, the World War One ships with the, the dazzle, the yeah. camouflage in like a very bizarre, perverse way is what if every human being needs to be covered in, in dazzle? But I don't think that leads us anywhere good or constructive or humanistic but it's fascinating that what can seem like a very outdated concept can also be something that's actually quite relevant even a hundred years later but you know what is this future we're building where every moment of your day is is a moment of self-defense it's almost um i would say it's very aggressive, like almost to prehistory, this idea that you must always protect yourself against predators at every corner, but instead of saber-toothed tigers. It's something lions, much, much worse instead. Yeah, it's it's an inorganic saber-toothed tiger. You know, I don't want to get too weird. I might be freaking people out. Well, it's silicone and it's farming yeah. you instead of just eating you. And then just as we cover ourselves with increasing levels of camouflage, you know, what are we losing in that? We're losing a lot. I don't know. I don't feel like this leads anywhere good. I don't like any of it. If I can offer one point of potential optimism here. Yes, please. Think about how cool it's going to be (laughs) to have some blingy cyberpunk jewelry that also disrupts radio waves around you, oh, blowing up drone signals and their ability to spy on you. How cool is that going to be? Yeah. yeah, I don't think, I don't think we're ready for drone stall. It's been completely normalized, and I, this is something that has really bothered me for decades now. Is the mass civilian casualties we just accept as a result of drone warfare? And how quick the public was to accept what has been algorithmic killing for a very long time before everyone got freaked out about algorithms killing people. I mean, since the early 2000s, these drones that we use in the Middle East, they they detect pattern. A signature strike just means it's a, the target has exhibited a pattern of terror-like behavior. They often don't even know who the actual target is, their identity. They don't know who anyone around them who is killed by the drone strike is. They just count any quote-unquote male of fighting age, okay, any boy, basically 13 and up, is considered, oh, that was an enemy combatant. And then that's yeah, used to further... Yeah, military age males, right? Yeah. And then it's just used to further justify, well, look, in this drone attack, we got 20 militants and only five civilians died when it was more likely probably like 15... And just how casually, as a society, that was accepted in America has just Obama always been disturbing. Obama blew up a hospital with a drone, and we meme yeah. about it. But it's just so disturbing, and that's not to be too much of a karma person, but I think everything we've done is going to return to domestic policy. And it's gonna not, it's not going to be very good for anyone. And maybe it'll start to hit people like what they've silently allowed to happen for decades. But when I think of the number of the tens of millions of pounds of bombs we dropped over Southeast Asia, then the absolute terror we rained down with drones over decades, it's, it doesn't portend a very bright future. So with all of that (laughs) discussed, what's the next step here? Like, how could this get any worse? What's next in their little guidebook? Well, I think think we're watching this unfold now is how will the next... What will the next Bretton Woods be, essentially? What will the next global consensus for the new financial order be? 
and how that unfolds. And that will change everything. I've said this before, but I think there's a misapplication of the phrase, never bet against the dollar, don't bet against the greenback. And it's actually just a version of don't bet against the global reserve currency, which I think is true, but global reserve currencies do come to an end eventually. And what rises, which will either be another singular currency achieves global reserve currency status, or we break a historical cycle, which is always possible, and we go into a a multipolar world order. But at the same time, I understand, you know, I've always understood that even if the U.S. dollar and the current U.S. hegemony falls, that doesn't mean another one won't rise up, and it may have just as many negatives as the U.S. system did and the dollar system did. It doesn't necessarily mean you're going to go to a magic utopia. Personally, I think commerce always finds a way, and it does seem like the world is realigning around those who are are willing to allow commerce to flow and those who are willing to allow energy policy to flow because energy is at the root of everything from commerce to politics to society. I think that the fossil fuel era is not over. There are people who really wish it was, but at the same time, an incredibly relatively cheap and steady fuel source tends to be very difficult to voluntarily extinguish as long as it still exists. And people who have the ability to use it and use it to grow their economies and use it to grow their societies are going to want to harness that power. Despite all the much to do about green energy and about Mm -hmm. OPEC and about OPEC Plus, Mm -hmm. I think what people tend to forget is the truly massive reserves the U.S. has that it's not even tapping into, beyond even the strategic reserve. Mm -hmm. You know, if it comes to a point where the U.S. dollar truly does get backed into a corner, Mm -hmm. it's always got a fighting chance backed up by its own oil, does it not? The U.S. does have, I mean, not just energy reserves. The U.S. has... A massive amount of mineral reserves, of metals, of natural resources. The thing is, there are many countries that are quote-unquote undeveloped or underdeveloped that also have those too, and it tends to be the management and application of resources versus just the pure volume that determines power and stability in the end. That's how you have all of these relatively small European countries that don't even have that many of their own natural resources who became major powers because they were able to divide and conquer other societies and exploit their resources towards their own end. So that's my concern. And I know a lot of people have told me, well, you know, the U.S. has unlimited supplies of weapons. It has all of this energy. You know, how could you ever say that things could truly go awry? But, I mean, Afri- the continent of Africa has trillions of dollars of, you know, rare earth elements, trillions of dollars of minerals, and look what's happened there. Um, the, U- the former USSR, USSR had and still has the territory that now is Russian Federation, has an incredible amount of resources. But you can have vast resources, both metals, energy, food, and still have a situation where you're able to be exploited by external powers who use that to fuel their own economies and stability. So that's my key concern. And especially as I think many people see this, we are entering what I think is a pretty definitive phase of lack of social cohesion of these many fractured splinters and it doesn't take that much to make an anti-fragile system fragile again and once the system is fragile that becomes very difficult to break because there are so many forces looking to exploit that 
situation and take advantage of that. And that that's my personal opinion. So just grasping for straws here, saying perhaps that I don't want to see the dollar die. Mm -hmm. Perhaps I want to keep living in a first world country just a little bit longer. If the oil reserves can't save us, is there any chance the digital dollar will? Can that prolong the dollar's time on top? I think they want it to. I don't know why central bank digital currencies are seen as some sort of out there conspiracy for a very long time, for the same reason that quantitative easing was introduced. I mean, central bank digital currencies are to me what the quote unquote out is um, to save the system. My personal belief is that we're already in a system of trying to fix problems caused by money printing with more money printing. And I think uh, uh, CBDCs could possibly just further accelerate so this spiral. So if printing more money didn't work and printing money to cover the printed money didn't work, <laughs> what if we just print a little bit more, but we don't physically print it this time? Would that work? And the reason that they think it will work is a central bank digital currency is something that is entirely controlled. So you can control the expression of that. You can determine how long it lasts. You can determine what it is allowed to be used, not used for. And you have much more concentrated top-down control. I think that they believe you could convert a large amount of bank reserves into U.S. treasuries, which are going to be labeled as a, as a digital currency. I'm not exactly sure how it will unfold. It does seem something that I even would have said, I don't know, but I think we're watching the process unfold now as we're watching the money be herded into fewer and larger banks. It's creating less escape routes. Yes, if large that's amount, exactly what it is. If large amounts of liquidity are being herded into fewer banks and a few large banks, which are the primary dealer accounts, it makes it much easier for a even seismic shift to occur because there's much more centralized control and there's not exactly many viable escape routes. But I, I understand that's a pretty out there thing to say. I want to say, I, I know that, but from my observation, that does seem like it's reaching the point of a tangible reality. Speaking of that though, you mentioned how capital is being herded into Larger and larger, but fewer and fewer banks. Mm -hmm. Just what's been going on with JP Morgan? <laughs> because it's under my, it's within my understanding that mm -hmm. they are still embroiled in the fallout of Epstein. Mm -hmm. Maybe you don't know anything about what's going on there, but I was just reading about it today. And apparently they're still wrapped up in some lawsuits that have not actually resolved. And people are finding more culpability with their management than anyone except people like me expected. Yeah, I mean, that's a real issue. I think it's it's a separate issue. Um, my thought is the primary dealers, which are the main institutions connected to the Federal Reserve, and when the Federal Reserve injects liquidity, it is into the accounts of the quote-unquote primary dealers. Um, those entities have become so large that I think they're almost above reproach. I'd like to believe they aren't, but maybe there's a few fall people, but it's hard to see how such large institutions could be completely removed 
But as we've seen, like things with Credit Suisse, which is a long-term known money launderer, has or Deutsche Bank, which is the uh, number one money launderer, yeah, has fallen. So I don't know. I mean, we're absolutely in a new in a new paradigm. Um, at this point, I'm thinking I follow the energy flows. Um, not to be too zen, but like they say, water finds the path of least resistance. I tend to think commerce finds the path of least resistance. And um, not that I think Epstein is a small piece. I think it's actually a larger piece, many puzzles than we assume. But I'm almost in the mind, for, mind frame now of a, a systemic world shift. That's going to change a lot of things, especially as the recession hits, which is coming. Absolutely. I would say the recession's already been here. And what people predict as the reception recession rather coming is just it getting that much deeper where it begins <laughs> to touch people who can't pretend it doesn't exist. Well, what's the saying has been, you know, you you declare a recession once you're well into one, but um, I tend to follow the, the yield curve. So I, I know I've spoken about this point to death, but the 10-year, two-year yield curve first inverted uh, April 1st, 2022. And the recession tends to follow six to 24 months after, usually about a year after. Um, and I think we're already deeply in that process. I, otherwise, we wouldn't be bailing out banks already. So. Like clockwork, we'll every day, I wake up, my mm -hmm. alarm is set to go off at 3 a.m., mm -hmm. I get dressed, <laughs> I go to work, I talk to my coworker who I'm relieving, mm -hmm. I open my phone, and there you are, posting the charts, every <laughs> morning at like 4.30 or something, your local time, and that's the first thing I see on social media every day. The world belongs to people who wake up between 3 and 6 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Yeah, I sure like to think so. Now, we're going to call this one just a little bit earlier than we usually do. Do you have any final notes for us? Um, uh, just to... Stay aware, stay calm. I think people think I encourage panic. I like to think I don't encourage panic. I think it's important to know the facts. And if you know the facts, then it enables you to make calm and informed decisions and to not be caught off guard, which is when true panic sets in. Absolutely. I cannot have put that better myself. All right. Well, if that's all we've got, folks, we will see you next time on the Scarlet Thread Society. Yes. <laughs>